Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Ryan Hummel and Mindy McGrath to talk about what's trending now. Since the start of the pandemic, there's been a lot of news around drug shortages. And even now in 2023, it continues to be something that percolates to the top of the headlines. In just the last year alone, we've seen drug shortages for ADHD medications, children's cold and flu medicine, and even key cancer treatments. Mindy, can you tell me a little bit more about what is the latest with these shortages, particularly in the United States? this is one of those topics that doesn't always hit the headline news, but probably should because of the extent of it and just the length of time that this has been going on. And I'm candidly really confounding the industry by the issue of shortages. You know, I think about what happened last month with the tornado that hit Pfizer's injectables facility in North Carolina and the damage that was done and how that impacts the the raw materials that are utilized to actually create product. I mean, this plant manufactures about 25% of Pfizer's injectables, which in turn makes up about 8% of the U.S. injectable supply. So there definitely is this trickle down effect when events occur and have this reverberating impact on the supply chain. You know, I think already when we look at injectable drugs, they're more than twice as likely as tablets or topical treatments to experience some sort of a shortage. Now you add an event like this, which is, you know, a tornado that's done subsequent damage to a facility. And you can expect that there is going to be a long-term impact to the injectables that are manufactured here. So, I mean, that's just the latest event that is just contributing, right, to the supply shortage that I think the industry has been dealing with for some time. Yeah, Mindy, I think unless you experience it on a personal level, it's kind of hard to put your arms around the fact that in the U.S. we have a shortage for a large list of of medications and drugs. And another major reason we're seeing this happen is the weakness of generics and the generic drug industry. If you think about it, the economics behind generic drugs really lend itself to exacerbating a shortage. They are often sold at a loss or a little profit. And many times domestic manufacturers aren't really interested in making them because of that. And then manufacturing in general is consolidated and that reduces competition. So, you know, there's a real kind of conventional economics behind this on top of the factors you mentioned the tightening of all of these kind of value chain elements then lead to supply chain issues. And there's a very large concern about these challenges that leads to uh, supply issues. There's shipping delays, there's policy factors, and there's even some quality issues that have been illuminated through this shortage. Generic drugs account for something like 90% of all prescriptions filled according to the Association of Accessible Medicines. There's been some news lately a large generic company, Acorn, went bankrupt. And there were some lawsuits over their drug quality. There was questions around their manufacturing policies and procedures. And you know, when we do a little research on Acorn, they were responsible for producing over 70 generic drugs. And if you look a little deeper, liquid albuterol, which helps treat 
childhood asthma and RSV or with those drugs. So it's a real issue. To your point, Ryan, I often think we don't talk enough about what the the movement and the shifting in the generics market means as a contributing factor to drug shortages, because you also look at another large generics manufacturer in Teva, and they announced recently that they're going to shift more of their strategy into what we would call brand name and, and high value generics. So, you know, I think when you couple all of these drivers together, it really does start to tell the story about why drug shortages are an issue and why they seem to continue to linger in an industry where it just seems baffling that that would be something you would see consistently. Yeah. When you think about the the human cost of this, it's really heartbreaking when you think about parents being unable to provide medicine to their sick children or oncologists being unable to treat their their cancer patients or having to make choices around who is prioritized, who starts treatment when, and really just exacerbating what's already a very difficult and frustrating time for both patients and providers. And this isn't something that there's going to be a silver bullet to solve. It's going to take action from the private sector and the public sector alike, looking at what are the fail-safes, what are the incentives. I think what we've seen over the last couple of years is there are a lot of weak points potentially in the supply chain. And we need to really think about not only natural disaster preparedness and how does it impact the supply chain, but what is the human factor of labor when we saw things like pandemic-related labor shortages and the associated drug shortages. How do we start to make our risk mitigation a little bit broader to encompass the many facets that these supply chains are dealing with in reality? And Jen, there's the economic piece that, you know, we touched on briefly, but I think you can't underscore how that also drives certain decision-making, right, in terms of investments in generics. And that is just yet another driver, right, for some of what we're seeing as an output of, of those activities in the generics market. Just to put it in more perspective, when we did a little research, there is something like 309 active drug shortages just in the U.S. at the end of June, the last time the study was done. And we haven't seen that sort of shortage in nearly 10 years. And we're raising a flag here. It's really important. And, you know, we're hearing about proposed actions, including states and kind of federal governments thinking about legislation that would allow states to responsibly stockpile key medications. CMS is getting involved. And, you know, I would argue that Creating laws that give states the right to stockpile key medications also has some ramifications negatively. I mean, there's some cold chain issues. There are expiration dates and there's already a shortage. So I'm not sure that's going to fix the problem. And Jen, you had mentioned earlier, this is certainly a long-term issue. This is not something that we're going to fix overnight. So we're really going to need some focus in the healthcare space to really create options and solutions around this. Speaking of another issue that seems to just be continuing to hit the healthcare industry hard is in the cybersecurity and the ransomware space. I was reading that earlier this month, there was a ransomware attack on a hospital system that spanned across four different U.S. states, uh, Prospect Medical Holdings, which owns hospitals and outpatient facilities in California, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island. And due to this ransomware attack, it wasn't just that records were getting held up or there was the worry about the loss of data. 
there was actually suspension of care services in the primary care, elective surgery, and even the emergency department spaces. Ryan, can you tell us a little bit more about what is happening in the provider space when it comes to these cyber attacks? How frequent are they and what kind of damage are they costing the industry? Again, this stuff kind of flies beneath the radar gem, but it is an enormous issue for health systems and hospitals. And while we're all keeping count of things on today's podcast, this is something like the 157th cyber attack on a U.S. healthcare organization just this year. And this was certainly the largest that we've seen. And larger health systems and hospitals may have better cybersecurity, but they also serve a larger population. So there are huge targets on the backs of these big health systems, and we're seeing it happen all the time. And many of our clients are asking for support and help. And I think there's probably four really big reasons why this is happening. And I think there are many more, but these are kind of the four that when I think of why a saboteur would be focusing on health systems, one, it's very valuable data, right? Hospitals do possess a organized list of data that includes personal information, names, addresses, social security numbers, and yes, medical history. And that data is very valuable on the black market. And couple that with outdated technology and legacy systems. We are investing billions of dollars into EHR, but many healthcare institutions are operating on older, outdated software when it comes to cyber threats. And so some of these folks that are accessing this information know that that makes health systems more vulnerable. Another area is redirected IT budgets. IT budgets are really been focusing on patient engagement, upscaling and automating your EHR. And IT security has kind of fallen by the wayside and a lack of investment in cybersecurity has left the door open for health systems to be exposed. There's a ransom element to this as well. Because patient care can be so immediately impacted as evidenced by the story you just told. Hospitals may be inclined to pay ransoms quickly or perceived to be inclined to pay more ransoms quickly. So it's a huge issue. And these attacks are extremely disrupted to flow and healthcare systems. What we're seeing is many health systems are having to quickly develop offline policies and procedures and do real live training to mitigate this. And while it's hard to kind of attribute mortality or the effects of some of this cyber attack proliferation in hospitals, we do know that any delay in care, whether it's elective or unelective, can lead to higher mortality rates. So it is a real issue in the healthcare space. Yeah, Ryan, beyond the impact to patient care, which I think, of course, is primary, there's also the financial impact that this type of attack can pose to these systems. And We've talked about it before. A lot of these orgs are already cash-strapped, operating with tight margins in a tough macroeconomic climate. So there's not much margin for loss here. And I think about a report I saw last month from the Ponemon Institute and IBM Security that in the last three years, the average cost of a data breach in healthcare actually grew 50%. And that when you look across the industry, even outside of healthcare, who stands to lose the most money when it comes to data breaches, cybersecurity attacks, et cetera? Healthcare and hospitals top the list. They lose more money, almost more than double than the second place industry financial services with 
the data breach and the associated financial losses. Yeah. And Jen, you mentioned patient care. I also think there's an element of lost trust when this happens. So you think about the cost to hospitals on many fronts after something like this has happened and what it's going to take to actually regain some of the trust that may dissipate when an event like this occurs. The other thing that I'm mindful of as we talk about this is how many hospitals actually report when they are a victim of it. And we have heard stories about hospitals kind of taking it on and deciding to try to resolve this on their own. So you almost wonder if that number is actually larger than what we even know today, right? And I think another element of this has been thinking through what hospitals and health systems have actually been through in the last couple of years. We know that they already operate in a really low margin environment and that they've been struggling with expenses and costs for some time. Now you add something like a data breach or a cyber attack onto the list of other challenges that hospitals and health systems are dealing with. And it just poses another serious threat, I think, to our U.S. hospital system. Definitely a couple hard-hitting stories when it comes to what's really impacting the industry, and particularly hospital systems right now, when it comes to drug shortages, when it comes to cybersecurity. But I don't think it's all doom and gloom this month when we're looking at the news. I was really excited to have yet another month where we can talk about some exciting FDA approvals. Last month, we were talking about OPIL. This month, we get to talk about another exciting development in women's health with the FDA approval of Zorzuve, a depression pill that is specific to treat severe depression after childbirth or postpartum depression. This new treatment comes from Sage Therapeutics in partnership with Biogen. They actually have a similar drug that's given intravenously over three days, but given just the steep cost of this type of medication and the inconvenience, uh, when you think particularly about those early baby days, probably not ideal to go get an IV treatment unless absolutely necessary. This oral formulation that can be taken once daily allows for so much ease of access, particularly for these new parents, which it's estimated that 10 to 15% of women who give birth in the U.S. experience depression either during their pregnancy or in the year after. And studies showed that this therapy had a significant impact in patients in terms of lowering their signs of depression when compared to placebo with benefits kicking in as early as three days. And when you just think about the immense burden on these women in the postpartum period, the ability for it to start acting quickly is amazing. Yeah, I was going to say, Jen, I think that's one of the major benefits, right, is you think about traditional antidepressants and the length of time it can take, right, to actually have a sustainable effect. And one of the major positions on this particular therapy is that it kicks in quickly, while antidepressants aren't new, one specifically designed to treat postpartum depression is, and that's really hopeful right? for, for patients and for physicians alike, that having this specific indication for postpartum depression will really reduce some of the stigma for patients when it comes to seeking help. Based on what Jen said about some heavy hitting topics, I'm happy to hear that we're 
talking about some solutioning as well. And we've seen how postpartum depression can be extremely serious and life-threatening. If you think about incidences of postpartum depression amongst mothers in low-income and low-resource areas, where there's a prevalence of things like premature infants, and there's a direct correlation between that and maternal mortality. And the U.S. continues to struggle with maternal mortality and access. There's a new report from the March of Dimes that talked about the number of maternity deserts, which do not have access to OBGYN providers or maternity care has increased since 2020. Not a good thing, but you know some of these antidepressants that we're talking about earlier could reduce the stigma. And just a quick plug, we're, we're recording this in the, in the Philadelphia area. So a little plug for Pennsylvania, despite some of the current budget impasse, you know, we're reading about some really first of its kind investments into maternal health programming for the first time ever in a state budget. The Pennsylvania governor, Josh Shapiro, has added a budget line of expanding maternal health programming and implementation of prevention strategies to reduce maternal mortality in Pennsylvania. And there's a direct kind of link with postpartum depression there. And while this pill is exciting that you mentioned, there's still a lot to be addressed. Systemic barriers that we've talked about around health equity for pregnant people, and it really has impacted pregnant folks in low resource areas and people of color. Although the pill was approved for postpartum use, this pill itself was not approved for the treatment for adults with major depressive disorder. And the FDA did say that it did not provide substantial evidence to do so based on effectiveness. So a little bit of a disappointment for Sage and Biogen, who were hoping to get kind of a larger tent and a larger market for this drug. And to your point, Ryan, about this maybe being a bit unexpected for Sage and Biogen in terms of not capturing the the larger indication that maybe they had hoped for, we are still waiting to see what the pricing will be for this therapy. And obviously that will have a huge impact on the ability for individuals struggling with postpartum depression to be able to access it, but very hopeful overall and a big stride forward for helping new mothers during what can be a very challenging time. As always, we know the only constant in the healthcare industry is change. So I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.